This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. All right. <laughs> Are you taking the lead now? <laughs> We've switched positions. Welcome back. This is Weekly Creep. You got it all Hope wrong. Oh. Welcome back, creeps. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back, creeps. This is me, Dulce, with my co-host, Adam. Hello, everybody. This is me, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> and today is going to be part two of... Men in Black. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, Before we start, I just want to give a shout out to my friend who has a thrift shop on Instagram. He personally selects things that pique his interest and they're good quality finds um, at, the at the local thrift store. And his page is called Irreverent Thrift, all one word. That's Irreverent Thrift. I-R-R-E-V-E-R-E-N-T-T-R-I-F-T. Irreverent Thrift. You so forgot the H. Out. But if you're watching on here, oh. um, <laughs> it'll be on the screen. Yeah. So just a little heads up. Yeah, we are doing video again this week. Don't know how long this is going to last, but I actually, it was a lot more fun for me to edit last week. Mm -hmm. Even though it took a bit longer, I was more engaged mm. in what I was doing. So I don't know. I'm happy enough to keep it going. Um, how was your week? It was good. Um, I made some good headway into my video game. I'm currently playing Persona 5 Royale. Apparently it's a huge fucking game. Um, but I'm really excited. It's different than anything I've played before. It's my first official JRPG. Cool. Um, oh no, it's not my first. I played a Mori. I think that's considered a JRPG. That's Japanese role-playing game. Yeah. This one is fucking insane. It's like I'm inside of a comic book that I can manipulate. So, and it's like combat and it's like really cool. Wow. So that's been my week. <laughs> Are we going to mention your visitor on Friday night? Oh, man. <laughs> okay. So I think it was like um, close to three. No, it wasn't. No. It was 1230. Yeah. That's what it was. I got woken up. Me and Porkchop got woken up um, by the sound of high heels. We have what What kind of material is like uh, this tile? Oh, uh, yeah. No, it's wood. No, it's not. It's tile. It just looks like wood. Learn something new every day. That's what. Uh, that's why my folks really liked it because it looked uh. like wood, but it's easy to clean. So, um, so there's tile and... It sounded like what came to mind is like those times that I'm out the door and I forget something. So I like hurry back inside in my high heels to get it so that I can leave again. And that's that's what it sounded like. It was like a rushed in a hurry uh, footsteps and heels. And 
I thought because it was Friday night, I thought maybe my sister had let him herself in because she has a key to the house. So I thought maybe like sometimes like if she has to pee, she's done this before. She'll stop by the house on the way to her house to come use the bathroom and then because <laughs> she can't hold it and then she'll go home. Um, I thought it was her. So I peeked my head out like expecting to see her in the bathroom in the hallway and there was no one. And I was like, well, maybe she went to my parents' room. And so I went and nothing. And so I know it wasn't just me and it wasn't just a dream because one, like when I raised myself up to look out, I was still hearing it. And when I was looking out the door in my line of view was pork chop and she was also looking. And the whole time, um, like I got back into bed after I checked both of the rooms, the bathroom and my parents' room, I got back into bed and Porkchop was still steady staring outside the doorway towards the hall. Every now and then she would like look to the floor like quickly, you know, like it's not like she'd lose interest and just kind of like gaze down. She like, her eyes were darting in different directions because something was pulling her attention so she would look to the floor and then she'd look behind me and then she'd look back out and she'd stay there and she'd stare for a good minute and then she'd look back here and then look back here and then look down there but then she would still go back here yeah it's like she was checking to make sure everything was okay in the room yeah so that was weird but like (laughs) (laughs) i fell back asleep and like wh- while I was dozing off, like I the whole time, Porchup was just on alert. Yeah, but yeah, so it was really weird, like getting woken up by Dulce, being like, "There's someone wearing high heels outside," and I was like, "What <laughs> oh, yeah, the forgot fuck about are you that. talking about?" Yeah, and I was like straight away just going to be like, regardless of whether I believed it or not, I was just going to say like, "Oh, you're just dreaming," because I didn't want Dulce. Dulce had to get up for work the next day, so I was like, "Oh, just go back to sleep. It's fine." But then. Even I knew that pork chop was like sensing something outside. You know what I mean? Yeah. Before I went to go check uh, the rooms in the bathroom, I had, I, and I remember, I did wake up Adam and I said, yeah. it sounds like, and I spoke it really softly because like, I don't know, in my head, I feel like if there is something in the house, if I talk really softly, maybe it won't hear us give it attention. I was like, there's, there's somebody outside. And it sounds like they're wearing high heels. Yeah. And he was like, what? I'm like, I think it, did I tell you it might be my sister? Yeah, after a minute, but like. Um, and then like, after, like I stood there looking out the window, I mean, out the doorway. And I gathered my, it took me a minute to gather my courage to go out there and fucking check. Because I was like, I don't know what I'm going to find. I, I didn't go and check. <laughs> <laughs> I stayed in bed. I was like pretending to be like, oh, it's just, you know, the wind. And then- <laughs> But I thought it was interesting that the last time something like that happened was like well over a year ago. And I'm sure we talked about it on here. Um, But like before we changed our bedroom around, like you, our bed was like a U with the closet at my head. And one night we were lying there and both cats were on the bed. And all of a sudden I got this smell of like flowery perfume mm-hmm. and like really, really nice, like scent. And then it was gone, but then I noticed that both Porkchop and Max were following something, like, down to the end of the bed, over to your side, and back up by Dulce. And then you smelt it too, right? Mm-hmm. 
So uh, whatever it is, it's like, if it's the same thing, it was obviously done up, like, ready to go out for the night. Yeah. I, I mean, it might be one of those, it could be a stink of the house. Yeah, like some residual, like, energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nothing feels scary and, like, it very rarely happens. Like mm-hmm. so, It's like two or three things in the last two or three years, really. Yeah, it just kind of feels like there's no intention behind yeah. this, like, two particular um, situations. It kind of just feels like... Something's overlapping or something. Yeah, yeah, like something's going on, like, with no attention to us. Yeah. You know? So if you do ever see, because I, I know uh, in a Just F and Ghost Stories episode, somebody met, mentioned, like, I keep looking over here by the door to see if, like... Because they felt like someone was going to, like, pop their head in or something. So if you do ever see that. Don't I mean, let I'm us sure, know. I'm sure I'll see it when I'm editing. <laughs> but, yeah. Um, that is the corner there to keep an eye on. That's the yeah. door back out. Yeah, whatever it is. It's minding its own business. But, yeah, other than that, uh, I found out that I had double the amount of wisdom teeth than a regular person. Um, might have uncovered a vampire family mm-hmm. at work. That was pretty in- interesting. And, uh, yeah, I watched The Stepfather 1, 2, and 3. So good. Like, actually, such a good movie. I think it the first one came out in 1989. I don't think we... Also, I don't think we mentioned that we... Did we mention that we were watching Parks and Rec for the first time? No, I don't. Oh, it's yeah, really we, good. we've been watching Parks and Rec. But, no, so The Stepfather, I'd seen the remake of the movie, like, years ago. I actually think I watched it with my dad. And it was really good. I think it's Jason Bateman. But I was on Shudder the other day and I was like, oh, let me check out the original. It's probably going to be shitty. No, I was glued to it. All three of them. And like any series, when it gets to the third one, I'm always like skeptical. But no, it like kept me going the whole time. And uh, yeah, I felt felt like it really held up as well, considering it was like 30 years old or older. I've never seen the movies. I'll take your word for it. They are really good. I think you would like them, honestly. It's almost more thriller than anything else, but mm. really good. I've had a really relaxing day, so that's why I'm yawning. And I... This episode is sponsored by... Not these guys. Um, <laughs> speaking of which, have you ever heard of Magic Mind? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you, you would know about such a thing, but... Um, I've heard really good things about Magic Mind. Yeah? Yeah, in fact, I actually used it for a little while. And I know somebody else who used it for longer than I did. Oh, I think I know who you're talking about. You're, you're married to her, your wife. Oh, that's me. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Brilliant segue there into uh, yeah, our Magic Mind thing. But yeah, I mean, I feel like if this is your first time listening, first of all, go back and listen to last week's episode because this is part two of a series. We have been saying this for the last few weeks. Um, but honestly, Magic Mind is just a really good product, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of focus, that's something that I didn't mention. The first time that I used it, I was working on the HH Home series and I necked a little shot of Magic Mind, went to a coffee shop and just like plowed through a whole episode. That's like really hard for me. Honestly, this week's episode, I didn't do that. And it took me several days and rewrites. So with the Magic Mind, I, I certainly felt more focused mm. um, and was able to get through it. They say that's because of like the nootropics, okay. I think. And then there's like the ashwagandha for your anxiety. I don't know if anyone's ever noticed, but 
my breathing is really weird on the show and I do my best to edit it out. That's why it takes me so long. But most of the time that's because of my anxiety, like depending on how stressed my body has decided it wants to be, I'll be breathing like more intensely or strangely or whatever. And yeah, so the ashwagandha in the magic mind is supposed to help with that. It's also supposed to help you sleep better. Mm -hmm. That's what you noticed, right? Yeah. Big time. Yeah. And it basically replaced energy drinks for us mm -hmm. for the most part. Yeah. Since I ran out, I've had to implement energy drinks, but I can't tell the difference because I'm not as like when I used Magic Mind, I went to the gym and I wasn't as full with the same amount, like a burst yeah. of energy. Whereas now, because I'm using energy drinks, I go and I'm a little sluggish because the drinks. And the crash is a lot harder too. Right? And yeah. So. So yeah. There's that. Yeah, and for like for me, energy drinks, they really make me go to the bathroom. Like <laughs> not number two, number one. Thanks for clarifying. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I don't know, I feel like that's important to to say, you know. Um But yeah, I mean it's just a smaller amount. Like that was one of the things that you really liked about my I love that anyway. it was a shot and that it's not like a whole ass drink. Uh, it's also got matcha in there, which is like the nice little dose of caffeine. It's not like mad intense or anything like I that. I love matcha. Yeah, and it's, I think that's what gives it the taste, honestly. I don't mm -hmm. know. But it does taste really good. Makes sense. Um, Again, we've been saying, like, Dulce now has noticed firsthand, like, the subscription is definitely what you want to go for because, like, it's it's not an energy drink per se. It's more of, like, a supplement. You know what I mean? So the more you take it, the better it does you. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, it's in your system. You're just kind of topping up. Mm -hmm. Um, And as well as that, if you get the subscription, you're going to save a lot of money. I'm completely blue over here. Uh, I'm going to have to change Why that. the fuck are you blue? I don't know. Um, But yeah, so that's why we would recommend the subscription. And yeah, you're going to save a bunch of money. So if you go to www.magicmind.co forward slash weekly creep, you will get up to 56% off if you go for the subscription. And if you type in code weekly creep, all capitals www.magicmind.co forward slash weekly creep use our code weekly creep and get up to 56 percent off um and yeah there you go finger guns i thought i lost this pencil or someone stole it that's what i thought i thought someone stole this pencil from my drawer at work but it's here I don't know when the fuck I placed it here. I was so sad because I was like, I can't even remember what it looks like. And here it is. It's Gudetama. Nice. The lazy egg. Because okay. I was like, now I have all this lead and I have these erasers. <laughs> Got all this lead and no pencil. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, no pencil. All right. So who is ready to hear the second part of the Men in Black? Yeah. That squeaking noise is Dulce rocking back and forth in a chair, <laughs> chair for those not watching. Um, oh, now it doesn't want to. Now they're <laughs> forcing it. So also last week, we did make a couple of reels with, I'm pretty sure, like most of the important information of like images that we were talking about on here. Because I know that for people watching or for people listening and not watching, last week's was actually a really visual episode. Um, so always check out our Instagram for more context about like what we're talking about on here again this video format is kind of new for us anyway so we will be learning but i'm gonna try my best to do hopefully more reels and yeah just regular instagram posts if not 
check out our weekly creep youtube because we have a few videos like older videos that we've done on there yeah that are actually pretty funny i watch well we watched that amazon review one. Oh my god that one was so fucking funny some of them are only available through the patreon page i'm not oh, still yeah i'm not honestly sure which ones mm. if you do want to sign up for patreon um it is only two dollars a month and there is a big backlog some of it's available on a regular feed some of it's not um and honestly i just don't know which is and which mm, isn't mm. so if you do feel like supporting the show absolutely jump on patreon if not um or and if you just want extra content jump on there and you can go through all the backlog of stuff yeah we will eventually get back around to producing more stuff on there two dollars the price of a coffee one every month the price of a coffee my coffee's i get the most boring coffees and they cost me four dollars every anyway a cheap cup Old of coffee. Old man corner over here. <laughs> um, once again, thank you, Claudia, for providing the books for this week's episode. Um, it's really, we really appreciate it. If you want to buy books for us, it's on our Amazon wishlist. Click the link in our Instagram bio. And anyway, let's get on with Men in Black. Okay. Okay. So last week we covered, also, I keep looking down here because this is where the my notes are. So last week we covered Albert Bender's story and the general feedback from you beautiful creeps was that people didn't realize just how strange like the real men in black stories of the real men in black were. Uh, We briefly mentioned the account of Raven Mindell's family whose experience like came across as I hate to use this word but like stereotypically demonic like with the bruising on the daughter's leg Mm. and all that and like poltergeist activity stuff like that. What I want to do with this series is cover the spectrum of weird and wonderful stories that I've come across from all of the source material, which is primarily Casebook on the Men in Black by Jim Keith, uh, The Real Men in Black, Evidence, Famous Cases and True Stories of These Mysterious Men and Their Connection with the UFO Phenomena by Nick Redfern. It's a really catchy title. And Kind of the Mothman Prophecies by John Keel. And yeah, spoiler alert, we will be covering Mothman very soon. And his juicy buns. His juicy tuckus. So where did the men in black come from? I hear you say. <laughs> there is, of course, like theories that the men in black have just always been. Mm. Uh, going back hundreds of years, there's always been stories of men in black. But there's a huge difference and separation, I think, mm. between a men in black story and a man dressed all in black arriving in the darkness of night. Mm-hmm. Usually those stories would have like would have people believe that that particular character was like the devil or one of his disciples or something. And it seems like the people involved in men in black lore believe that these are like the very same beings that are harassing people still today in this day and age. Like they've just modernized a little bit Mm. as their clientele, I suppose have modernized. Now I personally don't think this is the case exactly. But I get the connection between it. Like, I just don't think, you know, a ghost story of the man in black showing up at the house is not, to me, in my head, like, the same as three government agents showing up at the door. Like, you know, anyway. So back in the day, witches and the devil were the thing to be afraid of, right? Whereas now there's a much bigger fear of the government and especially, like, their mysterious black ops impossible intergalactic relationships Mm. that's going like way back but that was certainly a more pertinent fear in the 1940s and 50s still 
today the idea that like a citizen who suddenly unearthed a, go- a secret government project would surely just be disappeared by whichever top secret agent or agency is still like a pretty gnarly fear to have. Yeah. And not like the most far-fetched thing either. It's also a known fact that during World War II, the FBI, US Air Force and the CIA did like actually send out G-men, as they called it, uh, specifically to deal with sightings of UFOs. The UFOs in question on paper, actually rather fitting for this week, they were Japanese Fugo assault balloons. Mm. So I think this week already, I'm I'm not trying to stay up to date on all of the UFO goings on right now, but there's been like four of these balloons shot down the last week, mm-hmm. like over US airspace and stuff like that. So I thought it was kind of coincidental that I was reading about it happening almost 100 years ago, you know? This definition is directly from Wikipedia, but a Fugo was an incendiary, incendiary? A balloon weapon. Awesome. (laughs) um, Or balloon bomb deployed by Japan against the United States during World War II. A hydrogen balloon measuring 33 feet, uh, which is roughly 10 meters in diameter. It carried a payload of four 11 pound incendiary devices. I think that just means flammable devices. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Plus one 33... 33-pound anti-personnel bomb or alternatively one 26-pound incendiary bomb and was intended to start large forest fires in the Pacific Northwest. The Japanese launched over 9,300 of these balloons, but ultimately they all failed by a couple, which which did cause six civilian deaths. The G-men were sent out to control the narrative a little bit, stop word spreading and causing mass hysteria, or like just general panic, and also to stop reports getting back to Japan. Very real people, but definitely men in black suits showing up and demanding silence. So in my head, that is 100% a man in black. Mm. You know, and Art Bell uh, from Coast to Coast, in the couple of um, interviews I heard on his show, going way back, he said himself that he had been visited by men in black. He was like, no, I don't know whether they were government agents or aliens, but either way, I was scared shitless. Mm-hmm. So they have the same purpose, you know? I wonder how they controlled those balloons. Uh, high speed sure wind. They- There's like thermals and stuff that are mapped out. Apologies for all the noise in the background. Uh, but yeah, it was literally high speed wind. They're Same as like what brings the weather to us. Uh-huh. They were able to map these out and be like, okay, if we let these go at such and such, there's a possibility that they're going to hit this location. Obviously, they all didn't. Yeah. Some of them did. Um, But yeah. That's risky to just like (laughs) rely on. Yeah. Like you're literally just like, bloop. I think it was like a test mission. Mm -hmm. And the reason why there was 9300 was because they were relatively cheap. And they were like, fuck it, let's just see what happens. Mm. Like, at In the end sense, of the day... it's scary because it's like, we have all this ammunition. Let's just see what happens. Yeah, and at the end of the day, they weren't going to do huge amounts of damage, but they would have kept a huge portion of the American, like, firefighters and army out tending to these fucking wildfires. Mm. I think, anyway, I don't, I don't know. Just giving them something to do, I guess. Yeah, pretty much, like... So the typical, most basic description of the modern men in black is obviously a man in black clothing. A black suit specifically, with black shoes, black ties, crisp white shirt, wraparound black sunglasses, black hats, and many slight variations of this. 
never seeming quite right, like wearing heavy wool coats in the middle of July, or having skin that seems too loose or too tight, or generally trying to emulate regular human characteristics. Mm-hmm. Like black-eyed kids. Uh, again, yeah, this is very similar to black-eyed kids. I don't know about the skin with the black-eyed kids, but, I mean, they're younger, so their skin is just naturally more taut, maybe, I don't know. One of the things that sticks out to me are the vehicles. That might just be because I'm kind of a car nerd anyway. Like, I like... The Lincolns. Um, typically Cadillacs. I was going to say Chryslers. No, no, no. Well, so usually people describe them as Cadillacs, but generally just like nice looking cars. You know what mm. I mean? Um, a lot of reports describe really old, brand new cars. Mm. Like, for example, a 1960s Cadillac that looks like it just got off the assembly line in 2008. Mm. And in the UK... They typically drive Jaguars, but same story. Yeah. Old, but brand new. And people have done like checks on the license plates as well. Like people have been cognizant enough to when they feel like this is a man in black and they see them getting into their car or whatever, they'll like sketch down the thing. And one of the stories I read, the guy was actually an old private investigator. So he had all of the connections like to go uh, through the proper sources and still the license plates just come back as unregistered. Um, yeah like every time then there's the ethnicity of these men in blacks i i don't actually know i have mibs written down men's in black i probably will just end up saying mibs like a nerd but anyway i think i'm right in saying that the majority of the accounts describe the mibs as looking kind of asian or of asian descent other reports say tan skin golden skin and some are extremely pasty and pale so really differing, like, mm-hmm. um, just another broad spectrum. And other accounts describe people not even dressed in black at all. And yet the stories have some weird connection to other accounts. So they kind of have to bundle all these stories in together and be like, well, it does sound like a man in black, mm-hmm. even though he was wearing a brown suit. Hmm. And again, in one of the Coast to Coast episodes I listened to, Art Bell was actually kind of making fun of one caller for a situation like this. But Jim Keith, the author of one of the books, I can't remember which, stood up for her and said, a man in black or a men in black doesn't have to look like an MIB to be an MIB, basically. Mm. Um, And Art Bell is very kind of like sarcastic in his answering anyway. So I don't really know what he was getting at. But anyway, and like I said earlier, I actually restructured this episode. Like I started writing this last week and just couldn't figure it out to like a structure that I liked. And I would have a story in and then just jump to the next story and just be like, the fuck was that? So anyway, we're going to start with this pretty short story. Okay. Okay. In 1924, John Cole, a farmer, a farmer near Braxton County, West Virginia, saw a huge wingless aircraft crash in the forest. He went and got the local sheriff and the two went out to find it. But when they got to the crash site, they found that they were not the first ones there. There was a group of men all around five feet tall and all looked Asian. Some were dressed in shiny coveralls while the rest were wearing black business suits. One of these men assured the sheriff that there had been no injuries and he would be provided with a full incident report. Now, I don't know about the incident report, but I'm pretty sure that the sheriff never got one. The craft which had crashed was described as looking, quote, like the fuselage of a modern airplane with windows and all, 
about 75 feet long with no propellers or engines to be seen. As the sheriff and John were leaving the crash site, John picked up a piece of the wreckage as a souvenir to take home. At 3 o'clock that morning, John had a knock on his front door and it was one of the men from the crash site, only now he was wearing a US Army uniform. He demanded John give him back the piece that he took and then left without another word. When John went back to the crash site again, every trace of the wreckage had been completely removed. Like there was, it was still noticeably a crash site because all the trees and all were wrecked all around and yeah. burns or whatever. But every single piece of that wreckage was gone. And that was not the first example of like men in black showing up throughout history in the form that I would say like G-men or whatever. But I thought it was a really solid example of um, like tangible men in black showing up, physically taking something and handling a situation and telling the, the people, don't worry about it. We've got to go back home. One of the more popular stories, I think anyway, from hearing like other people covering it, was that of an incident that occurred in June 1947 up there in Tacoma, Washington. A fellow by the name of Harold Dahl, not Roald Dahl, allegedly witnessed and took photos of six donut-shaped UFOs flying 2,000 feet above his boat as he was travelling to Maury Island. Quote, In describing the aircraft, I would say they were at least 100 feet in diameter. Each had a hole in the centre, approximately 25 feet in diameter. They were all sort of shell-like gold and silver colour. Their surface seemed of metal and appeared to be burled because when the light shone on them through the clouds, they were brilliant. Not all one brilliance, but many brilliances. Something like a Buick dashboard. <laughs> all of the aircraft seemed to have large portholes equally spaced around the outside of their donut exterior. These portholes were from five to six feet in diameter and were round. They also appeared to have a dark, circular, continuous window on the inside and bottom of their donut shape, as though it were an observation window. Now, one of the U one of the UFOs was like struggling, and the other six had surrounded it as it was like, kind of like chitty chitty bang bang in its way across the sky, I guess. Then Harold heard an explosion, and the struggling craft dropped white metal sheets and dark slag into the ocean, and the nearby beach. I left out the word and, so I was like, now what else was in the ocean? Sharks. Harold and his boat. Oh. This random UFO dropped its load over Harold's boat and Harold's son was hit and burned pretty badly. And pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> but a pet dog that was on board. Because it's load. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you just laugh. You didn't even know. I didn't know what you were talking about. I'm, my head is too fucking... <laughs> Trying to decipher my own notes over here. Um, but as well as that, a pet dog that was on board was killed and the boat itself was damaged. So Harold had to go back. He This wasn't actually his boat. He was manning the boat, but... Was the dog his? I don't know. I assume so. Hmm. Harold immediately went back to land to report his boat damage to his superior office officer, Fred Chrisman, and as well to take his son to the hospital. Like, he was really badly burned. He was under the impression that Chrisman didn't believe him, but the following morning, Chrisman headed out early to see what had landed on the beach. And he found this, quote, lava rock. That's what they kept referring to it as. And some of the white metal that Harold had reported. But as he's standing there inspecting the site, he says he saw one of these donut-shaped crafts 
pop out from behind a big fat cloud and circumnavigate the small beach, seemingly like surveying the area. And this is where the story gets weird. Later that morning, Harold gets contacted at his house by a man in a black suit, and then they go for breakfast together at some local place. Yeah. The fuck? Yeah. I think that means like this rando just showed up at his door because this was the 40s. I don't know if he necessarily would have had to phone or to call ahead and be like, meet me here. You know what I mean? I, I, he agreed to go to the, with a rando? Maybe it was like, if we're going to do business, let's do it away from my house. I don't know. But bear that in mind for a later story. Over breakfast, this man in black recounts the incident Harold had gone through the day before as though he had actually been on the boat with him when it happened. He then threatened Harold and his family, telling him not to mention this incident to anyone ever again. And then the photographs that he had taken were later developed that same day. But of course, like they were all unclear and then suddenly went missing. Kenneth Arnold was called in to investigate the case on behalf of a book publisher who Chrisman had contacted and upon arriving in Tacoma found that there wasn't any rooms available anywhere until he found a hotel that actually had a room which had been booked and paid for under his own name by some unknown person. Now this could have been the book publisher who organised him to go out there but I don't know. And Kenneth Arnold was called because he had actually like witnessed a mad UFO sighting like recently and he was I guess kind of like plunged into the saucer work world he also had his own plane so he was probably the easiest person to like it probably didn't take much convincing for somebody to call him be like hey can you go check this out and he's like I'm on my way (laughs) you know so anyway he interviewed Harold and Chrisman in the room and later found that the conversations had been leaked to the press almost word for word. Oh. Now, he suspected the two men because yeah. he didn't know them from whoever. But he also searched the entire hotel room for listening devices, which he did not find. But during this search, what he did find was that somebody had added a page to the phone book in the room. It was Harold Dahl's private, unlisted phone number. Just really, really random. That is. Yeah. Like, how did they know that he was going to look in the phone book? Yeah, I don't... You feel me? It's like, I understand they probably did it, like, as a threat. Like, we can get a bunch of other randos to call you. Yeah, yeah. If they look in this phone book. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Well, so, Harold Dahl was the experiencer. Mm -hmm. Kenneth Arnold was the one who found the number. But even still, a really strange occurrence. Yeah. From Arnold's interaction with the two men, he found that Harold, he found Harold to be the more believable of the pair. Mm. There was just something about Chrisman that like didn't sit well with him. He was really into the idea of having like military and government agencies involved in this story. He was just very excited about the whole thing. Mm. Um, whereas Harold was more reserved and seemed like he just wanted to tell his story and be done, like get the fuck away from all this. But it turns out that Chrisman had actually been in the OSS, which was what turned into the CIA eventually. And the theories about him having something to do with like the JFK assassination, all this like madness that I, the more I read it, the more I was like, there's something else like going on here with this guy. But I don't know whether he was like spreading these rumors himself. Oh yeah, could be, yeah. If he's that excited about the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But regardless of all that, After Harold's incident was reported, the military did send over people to investigate, 
And it's assumed that they got samples of the materials too, the white metal and the black lava rock. But while these guys were flying back to their base, their plane crashed. Right, these official government sent like army people. But only two of the four people in the plane died. The other two were the two unarmed, the two unnamed men jumped to safety. But there was allegedly no radio, no emergency radio broadcast at any time from this flight, even though the two parachutists jumped approximately 10 minutes before the plane actually went down. Hmm. Yeah. And again, the two people who survived were unnamed. And afterwards, the area was blocked off with the excuse that there was classified cargo on the wrecked craft and nobody was allowed. Naturally, nobody was allowed on the at the crash site. So when Kenneth Arnold was getting ready to fly back home in his own personal plane, he also had a pretty close call. He got 50 feet off the ground and then suddenly the engine just stopped dead. It like didn't sputter or anything. It just cut out completely midair. That's terrifying. Yeah. Now he managed to land safely enough with only minimum damage to his landing gear. But upon inspecting the aircraft, he found that somebody had actually switched off his fuel valve. Like it was physically closed. The fuck? Yeah. Weird. How? Like mid-flight? No, I guess like there's enough fuel in the engine and system just get already. just going. Yeah. I mean, that's, I guess. Oh, you know wow. I mean? More unfortunate stuff happened to Harold as well. But like he blamed it. He basically said like after this incident, his whole life went to shit. And he like seemed to blame it on the incident. But it all like seemed really unrelated. Like his wife got really sick. He lost his job and like his son was involved in like a near death accident or something. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it could be related. Like, it could be, yeah. Not exactly directly, but like, remember how we were talking in the last episode, the possibility of uh, things being like related to each other, like UFO things related to like. Yeah, like people getting like radiation sickness and yeah. stuff like that i mean maybe but like the wife wasn't there yeah you know and mm -hmm. it was more like um like unfortunate events rather than like like that if the wife had been there and then got cancer like a few months later you could have gone like oh maybe that was it and then like people who usually have experiences with like ufo and extraterrestrial things you never hear about their lives just like remaining the same yeah or getting they better <laughs> or getting better they're like they won a million dollars and yeah, then, that's you know, like you never hear that you always hear like bad shit went down they've yeah. been ostracized from their community that's a lot of it you know yeah. a lot of it so it's like there's got to be like some correlation between people who experience these things and like the shit that happens afterwards just misery after yeah <laughs> okay so from and again there's a lot more to that story um but I'm trying to like touch on all the highlights here. So from that story, we're going to jump forward another little bit here to September 11th, 1976. Ah. Orchard Beach, Maine. A general practitioner with an interest in hypnosis, Herbert Hopkins, had been working with a patient who had experienced missing time after an encounter with some mysterious lights in the sky. <laughs> with some mysterious lights in the sky while driving home late one night the previous October. He had been doing regression therapy with this guy, David Stevens, and it was becoming clear that he had been abducted by aliens, or at least that was the story that was being dragged out of him. Anyway, 
Around 8 o'clock on the evening of September 11th, 1976, Dr. Hopkins, Doc Hop, as his friends call him, uh, received a phone call from someone claiming to be from the New Jersey UFO Research Organization, or NJUFRO. All right. He wanted to ask the doctor some questions regarding the Stevens case, and so Doc Hop invited him over without a second thought. Just like that. Just like that. Didn't even know the chap's name. After he hung up, he went to the front door to turn on the outside light so the guy could see the house number. But when he got to the front door, the man was already there. Fucking knew it. He was I walking, fucking knew it. He was walking slowly up the porch stairs. Jesus Christ. And this is before cell phones. Yeah. And, like, and before so, car phones. Exactly. And there was no parked cars that like he could have gotten out of. What no strange fuck? cars like hanging around. Again, that's my point. This is long before mobile phones. And Doc Hop knew that there was no nearby phone boxes either. Yeah. Or phone boots or whatever you call them. Yeah. Even more strange, Doc Hop simply opened the door and let the man in. Yeah. I don't like even in know- hindsight, did he think that was weird or like... Yeah, no, definitely. This dude's house had actually been burgled twice in the past. Like he was quite, um, like not paranoid, but like very... Safety conscious, like in his house, but security still conscious. Open the door, still open the door. Yeah, to this rando. Yeah, after all those burgles, all those burgles. Yeah, <laughs> but like I don't even know if they acknowledge one another, like if they said hello, anything. He definitely didn't get his name by this point. The fuck. And this description of the man is taken directly from the Nick Redfern book, The Real Men in Black. Quote: The man's clothes and Homburg hat were utterly black. His suede gloves were grey, his skin was deathly white, and his body was skinny, in the extreme, as was evidenced by the fact that the man's wrinkle-free suit was clearly way too large for his sickly-looking skeletal frame. More astonishing... (laughs) (laughs) Jim much? (laughs) More astonishing, when the man sat down and removed his Homburg, the hat... Hopkins could not fail to see that he was totally devoid of any hair on his head. There was not ev- there was not even any telltale stubble. In addition, he lacked both eyebrows and eyelashes. Alopecia. Yeah. The man's bright red, extremely thin lips stood out dramatically in contrast to his milk-white skin. The family dog barked violently at the man in black when it first saw him and then suddenly ran off with his tail between his legs. It was oh. a German Shepherd as well, yeah. What the fuck? The German Shepherd mix. Jackson's a German Shepherd mix. It was German Shepherd and Collie mix. Oh, okay. So this one's corgi. a good guard dog. Yeah, not a corgi. <laughs> <laughs> um, he's he's short. But the poor dog spent the remaining like time of that evening shaking in the closet, literally. The man sat down and started asking questions about uh, Stevens or the Stevens case. While Doc Hop was answering the man, he noticed that he kept holding the back of his fingers to his lips while still wearing the grey gloves. Right. So he just kept doing this. Oh, okay. But when he took his hand away from his mouth, okay. the backs of the gloves were stained red where he had been where he had rubbed off the lipstick he had been wearing. What the yeah. fuck? The man in black then told Doc Hop that he had two coins in his left pocket. Now, as in like Doc Hop had two coins in his own pants pocket. Wait, wait. 
So the guy was like, hey, you got two coins in your pocket? Yeah. Okay. Now, maybe he was like me. I I was just wearing these skinny ass jeans because. He was like, can I have them so I can go buy more lipstick? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, Do you have any money? (laughs) But either way, the man in black somehow knew that this dude had two coins in his pocket. He told him to take one of them out and just hold it in the palm of his hand and stare directly at it. Not to look at the man in black, but just stare at the coin. Okay. Okay. The coin changed from silver to a weird blue color, became blurry, then changed from a solid metallic form to vaporous substance, and then finally disappeared in his hand. What the fuck? Yeah, in the doctor's hand still. Yeah. The man in black then informed Doc Hop that Barney Hill's heart had been melted by that same technique, and that's how he died. And if Hopkins didn't get rid of all this Stevens information, the same thing would happen to him. What? Yeah. Now, Barney Hill and his wife, Betty, were two, probably the most famous alien abductees. Like, well, we're obviously going to cover that story at a later stage. I'm not going to go into it now. But Barney's actual cause of death was a cerebral hemorrhage on February 25th, 1969. Or at least that's what they want us to think. Okay. That's what's on his like death certificate. But either way, whether the man in black was bluffing or not, how would Hopkins ever know any different? You know yeah. what I mean? In 1976. Yeah. It's not like he can go and fact check this real quick. He couldn't Google it. Yeah. And he was threatened even further by the man in black saying that he would know if he didn't get rid of all his material. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> then this is where it gets even fucking more bizarre. Then the man's speech started to slow down. What? He stood up and clearly very unsteadily made his way to the front door. Doc Hop just got up naturally, instinctively, and opened the door, and the man gripped the railing of the porch steps and said clumsily that his energy was running low. He then walked toward a bright light, so bright, in Doc Hop's driveway, so bright that the doctor couldn't actually see what was behind the light. So he ran to his kitchen for a better look, but the light was gone, and so was the man in black. Hopkins got rid of every shred of information he had on David Stevens, and for a week he had nightmares about his awful encounter. And in every every night he had this dream, the uh, man in black's face just kept getting closer Ugh. and closer to him. Lipstick and all. I was actually going to put on lipstick for this. I just <laughs> forgot about it, to be honest. And then they also had the weird telephone interference that so often accompanies men in black activity, mm. like I briefly mentioned last week. I think, like, if nothing else, when you start hearing, like, weird clicking noises every time you pick up your phone, like, you're definitely going to feel like you're under surveillance. Yeah. Right? That is, there's something scary about that. Sometimes when, like, I get these phone calls from numbers that I don't recognize, and, like, I'll pick up, I'll answer, and I'll hear nothing. There's something jarring about that. Yeah, and, like, especially if you've already just gone through a, a weird, like, stop doing what you're doing because we're watching you situation, like, you're 100%. My granddad used to tell me, don't know how true it was, my granddad can spin a yarn. But our his oldest brother was fluent in Gaelic mm-hmm. and he was a good bit older than my granddad. So apparently he had ties to the IRA like back in the 50s. And my granddad would say he also had a telephone in his house, this guy, because mm-hmm. he had like money. That was like a thing. You know, he had a telephone mm. in his house. But he would show my granddad apparently when he would pick up the phone, you could hear someone else unclicking and listening in he said it was the english oh yeah because of his ties 
Who fucking knows? That could be a completely made up story. But That's interesting. I always think of it when I hear stuff like this. But anyway, last, sorry, that was total sidetrack. But last week I briefly mentioned John Keel's uh, phone masturbator definition. You remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I actually looked it <laughs> up. He's like, I know when someone's on the other end masturbating. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> so this is a quote from Mothman Prophecies. Today, heavy breathers plague telephone subscribers from coast to coast and are usually assumed to be sex nuts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I received many such calls in 1967, 1968, I recorded some of them and studied the tapes. The sound is more mechanical or electronic than human and is probably caused by the introduction of a modulated current into the telephone line. This phenomenon is not isolated to the cities. People in remote towns with a population of only 25 or so also get these calls. The heavy breathing of the sex nut who, supposedly, masturbates while he listens to a female voice on the line contains certain recordable vocal characteristics which are totally absent in the heavy breathing calls I taped. Played at a slower speed, the recorded breathing was an evenly spaced series of pulses resembling the swishing sound of a phonograph when the needle reaches the end of the record and does not reject. Heavy breathing would not be so uniform. So this is the difference between men in black not masturbating sex notes. Mm. But uh, like, as funny as that was, like, you know random masturbators on the end of the phone line or whatever the difference between there being a person on the end and a man in black from what john keel uh says here that actually is fucking freaky like mm. if you if it sounds like basically a robot on the other end of the line that's so weird or some weird like you know mechanical thing yeah oh also uh this was a, supposed to be a joke that i made and i forgot to finish it uh in jufro the New Jersey uh, fucking UFO research organization didn't even exist. Oh. Yeah. I just made it in Jufro because they always make like silly little. Uh, like MUFON. Yeah, like MUFON, yeah. Mm. But anyway, yeah. So it was another thing like how would Dr. Hopkins even know that this did or did not exist at yeah, the time? That's anyway. True. Say anything in an authoritative voice and someone will believe you. Yeah. And also this thing clearly had some sort of like fucking telepathic control going on, you know? Yeah. Anyway, Arthur Marie Jones also had some crazy phone calls in the 1990s. Jones had been in MUFON, the mutual UFO network since I think the mid 70s and had made friends with another lady based on their interest in UFOs or whatnot. So, like, she had moved from L.A. to San, Di San Francisco or San Diego or something and put an ad in the papers being like, hey, I like UFOs. Do you like UFOs? Like, let's start up our own smaller, like, UFO research thing. The friend who she refers to as Anna was a, like, tough biker chick and she had confided in Jones that she had been experiencing this weird phone activity. But the more Anna and Jones, like, hung out together, the more Jones started to experience the same activity which i mean to me this makes sense like whether these mib are human or not the general theme seems to be surveillance mm -hmm. so it would only make sense like if you became associated with this person they're gonna watch you they're too. Gonna, yeah you know yeah what started as just weird interference and clicking noises soon developed into full-on stalker type calls it, quote it was always a male caller she said 
and the person on the other end had a very robotic voice. They almost sounded like they were talking through some kind of voice changer. It was very stilted, very robotic. This person was telling me what clothes I had on, what book I was reading, where the book was, what room I was in, and the place where I lived you couldn't see in it. The calls kept coming, and this person was telling me more and more personal things, things that they should have never known. She asked Anna if she was also experiencing this, and Anna, who lived in a kind of a rural area, told Jones that they had actually had people trespassing on their property late at night. Her husband would run out there with a gun and chase them off, but she said that they looked human, but moved like robots. Very stiff, unnatural, and had staring and staring with unblinking eyes. Mm, kind of like me when I spaced out. A little bit, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like... Yeah. <laughs> they were like running like this. Yeah, that's actually what I kind of imagine. Like. <laughs> um, so these obvious... Sca- like this. <laughs> yeah. God, God, God. Run, 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 run. But these obvious scare tactics were starting to work, and eventually Jones was... If, was and eventually Jones was afraid to even answer her phone. But what I thought was really interesting was that it seemed to be just one person. Like, the same guy on every phone call. Jones refers to him as one single person, too. So, when I think of the men in black, it's generally a group or organization. But this gave me more, like, a more innocent perspective on the whole thing. Like, almost like the social worker style system. Mm. It's like, Agent 11, Greg... Can you take care of this while we, like, you know, do whatever? And don't come back until it's handled, you know? And then it's like Greg's job to just call this person and be like, you're reading Marion Keys. Like, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Or you are reading Marion Keys. But this person or thing would ask questions relating to Jones and Anna's group research stuff. And while never outwardly making threats, it would just allow them to know that it was watching. It knew what was going on. It knew who Jones and Anna were talking to. And it also knew when Jones was home alone to make these calls. And again, I'm not oblivious to the fact that this could have been a very real human stalker, not a government entity at all, or alien entity. But eventually these scare tactics worked. Jones and Anna disbanded their little UFO group and Jones even like moved away. I don't know if it was quite related, but she moved back to LA after a while. So I don't know, like part of me... The, the cynic, the skeptic in me is like, this could just be someone who, who is also interested in UFOs and it's just like, I'm going to play such a good prank on these people because they're so invested, I'm going to make them look like idiots. Mm. You know, by being the men in black myself. I don't know. It's all just, you know, guesses. Or it could have been like one of their friends. That's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. yeah who, who Maybe who went was, inside their house and knew what book they were reading yeah, and where it, they kept it. It could have even been, this was my theory. So Jones's husband at the time was a musician. Mm-hmm. And so she would be at, at home late at night on her own while he was out like playing gigs or practicing or doing whatever. And like part of me was thinking like, God, that could have even been your husband. Yeah, that could have been. Yeah. Knowing what you were wearing, knowing what room you were in. Well, no. Like he would know where the phone was even. Well, no, because he went outside and he chased, unless no, no, she no, saw. No, this was Anna's friend. Oh, right, right, right. Or okay. Jones' friend, Yeah, Anna. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, it could have been the husband. He's like, you know what? I'm tired of my wife having opinions and hobbies. I mean, yeah. You know, yeah. Like some weird control thing. Like yeah. who, who fucking knows? But that's just it. Nobody knows like yeah. any of these things. Because there's people 
crazy people out there. Yeah, that's a possibility. Nuts, you know, but sticking with the telephone stuff for a minute, mm. just for one minute. Um, in one of the interviews with Nick Redfern, he admitted that while never having ha- had a face-to-face MIB experience, he did say that he experienced some weird phone stuff when writing his book. Mm. He also, like, he seemed really level-headed. Honestly, like, he he wasn't, like, tongue-in-cheek when he was talking. Like, he took the stories very seriously, but he also, like that, like, he said, like, these could have very normal fucking explanations, but this is just the information that I have and I'm providing to you. But he did admit that he was like really creeped out one night when his phone rang and it was one of these weird calls, but it was literally coming from inside of his own house. What the fuck? Yeah. And I'm pretty sure it was a self, like a mobile phone that he picked up and it was like, now I'm pretty sure this before like Apple, but like say I can call my phone off of my iPad or laptop or whatever, and it will come up like Adam Lynch. You know, and essentially that happened to him. And so he was like, okay, someone's playing with me. He answered it and it was just these weird noises, like clicking noises and stuff. That's so weird. Yeah, and also like really cliche, which he admitted. He was like, yeah, like he kind of sounded a bit embarrassed to even be admitting it. Like, yeah, but still weird. Mm -hmm. There's another really famous MIB story that I really personally, again, don't think this was an MIB story at all, but I'm including it because it seems to always get referenced. This one, this one took place in the summer of 1967 in Max's, Kansas City, which was a legendary nightclub and restaurant located at 213 Park Avenue South in New York City. Now, the reason why I'm even telling you this is because like this place was the spot for like all sorts of rock stars, Lou Reed, Andy Warhol, all these people used to hang out there, especially during the 60s and 70s. Mm-hmm. It's mentioned in rock stars. Like that's how I knew about Max's, Kansas City. I think it was from an Aerosmith song. Mm-hmm. I think Mama Kin actually... I could be wrong. Anyway, but if you're interested in learning about any of that kind of stuff, like check out No Dogs in Space. They do deep dives on punk and stuff like that. So I found out even more about Max's Kansas City and it was just like a staple. Either way, well known for like weirdos hanging out. And in the summer of 1967, a quote, oddball character walked into Max's. He was tall, awkward and dressed in an ill-fitting black suit that seemed out of style. His chin came to a sharp point and his eyes and his eyes bulged slightly, like thyroid eyes. That's a quote. He sat down in a booth and gestured to the waitress with his long, tapering fingers. Something to eat, he mumbled. The waitress handed him a menu. He stared at it uncomprehendingly, apparently unable to read. Food, he said almost pleadingly. How about a steak, she offered. Good. She brought him a steak with all the trimmings and he stared at it for a long moment and then picked up his knife and fork. He went like this with it. Well, (laughs) glancing around at the other diners, it was obvious that he didn't know how to handle the implements. The waitress watched as he fumbled helplessly. Finally, she showed him... (laughs) I'm just imagining him banging his head up against the steak. Yeah, yeah. You know, try it, like, eat it. Anything. (laughs) Finally... She showed him how to cut the steak and spare it with the fork. He sawed away at the meat. Clearly, he was really hungry. Now this this is a quote again from uh, Mothman Prophecies. Where are you from? This is the waitress. <laughs> she asked gently. Not from here. Where you? Another world. Boy, another put on artist, she thought to herself. 
The other waitresses gathered in a corner and watched them as he fumbled with his food, a stranger in a strange land. And again, like I said, that's pretty much a direct quote from Mothman Prophecies, but I included it because, number one, I've heard it a bunch of times kind of dolled up and made to sound really mysterious and like, he didn't even know how to eat steak. Oh my God, he's clearly an alien. But, like, they just make it seem a little bit stranger than it actually might have been. And two, because... This really sounds like someone who's just been on a three or four day bender. Yeah. Coming into Max's Kansas City and being like, Lou Reed is sitting in the corner, like looking at you. <laughs> like, you know <laughs> what I mean? He's just done a ton of fucking whatever drugs was going around in the 60s and 70s. Mm, possible, yeah. But it is also still, if it is a man in black, what was he fucking doing there? You know what I mean? Yeah. Anyway, I know what you're saying right now. Like, Okay. Are we men in black because we know what you're saying. Yeah. <laughs> Enough of the stories. Where's the proof? Where's the evidence? Fine. You want to see pictures of the real men in black? Oh, God. Real life, in the flesh, men in black, in all their terrifying... Don't show me Will spine Smith. Spine-tingling... No, it's actually... <laughs> I should have done that. I never even thought of that. In all their spine-tingling, flesh-crawling glory. Okay. Avert your eyes, watchers. Oh, God. Listeners, go on Instagram. Really? Ah, tedious. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. It It just looks like a guy who lives in his parents' basement. Pretty much. I'm pretty sure that's exactly what this is. <laughs> so, oh, and this one as well. His hat's white. I know. And this one, which is actually kind of ominous looking, right? No. It's a dude in a suit. He looks like a blues brother. Well, I mean, Blues Brothers look like MIB. Yeah, but they look like they fucking can pull out a clarinet from under their fucking jacket coat. But the story behind the more like voyeuristic, ominous Maybe photo, an oboe. <laughs> it's actually pretty a pretty interesting story, right? John J. Robertson, Jack to his friends, was the secretary for the National UFO Conference and was apparently the man to go for to go to for all of your UFO needs in New Jersey. He apparently had a huge UFO library. Not really sure what that means, but he was balls deep in saucer work, okay? And I think, like, his library was a collection of, like, first-hand accounts written down, you know what I mean? Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Like, really cool stuff, honestly. Mm -hmm. But one day, Jack's wife, Mary, told him that for four days she had seen a dark-suited, hat-and-sunglass-clad stranger hunkered down in the doorway of a building next to their apartment, and she was justifiably a bit freaked out. To her, it seemed like he was keeping an eye on who was coming and going from their apartment building. Then the phone stuff started happening. Or maybe they were just paying attention to the like background noises on the phone. But either way, Jack found his UFO records and notes had been, quote, thoroughly rifled. Mm. Now, Mary was convinced that they had been scanned by someone or something. Because... This is all based on how meticulous Jack was with storing his notes, much like Albert Bender, honestly. Mary had been reporting to Jim Mosley and Timothy Green Beckley, who were also saucer nerds, but they lived over in New York. Jim Mosley was actually the founder of the group that Jack was the secretary for. And Beckley said, Both me and Jim don't get up for nobody before noon. But Mary called so many times that Jim phoned me one day and he said, You know, Tim... Why don't we try and get up early and drive over to Jersey City without letting Mary know that we're coming? Hey. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies, any New Yorkers. Oh. oh. 
And so they did, right? And Beckley continued, this was a narrow street Jack and Mary lived on, okay? And we were following traffic and people were double parked in some places. So we're driving down the street and sure enough, next to Mary's building, there's this guy standing recessed into the building, like not on the sidewalk, a bit back in. He's kind of staring ahead and he looks just like a man in black. Oh. (laughs) We know what New Yorkers sound like. We listen to the bass. Yeah, we do listen to the bass. That's probably the most mannish thing that I do, actually, is listening to the basement. <laughs> and so, anyway, he managed to get that picture of the dude, like, skulking back in, hanging out by that building. Mm-hmm. But they just had to keep going because there was nowhere to stop. So, he's, like, driving by, gets the picture. And, of course, by the time they get back, the creep was gone and never showed up ever again. Oh. Yeah. But what's extra interesting about this is while Beckley is 100% to this day still believing that this is a genuine picture of a man in black, Mosley, who was the founder of this uh, UFO conference, he has a much more down-to-earth theory. So we drove over there, and Beckley took the photograph out of the window as we was driving past the apartment. So the picture is real, and there is a guy standing in the doorway. And Tim was right. We went around the block, and when we came back, the man was gone. The only thing that kind of made sense to me was that he was a lookout for a bookie joint or some illegal oh, operation. Yeah. But the point is, to me, not to Tim, I know, it had absolutely nothing to do with the Robertsons or the Flying Saucers. He might have seen Tim taking the picture out of the car. Car? Car? Yeah, car. Yeah. He might have seen, seen Tim taking his picture out of the car. And if he was doing something illegal, that's why he left. Yeah. Oh. (laughs) Now, the other picture, which was taken by the one and only Reverend Dr. Alan Henry Greenfield, who is famous for his works as a ufologist and an occultist, which, by the way, I actually think I want to change my like title to occultist. I think that's pretty cool. That is cool. One thing I will say about all of these people that I mentioned, Like, as much fun as I'm going to, like, poke at them, because, like, some of the stories are funny, you know what I mean? I have the utmost respect for, like, the amount of work and years of their lives that they have dedicated to, whether it's ufology, ghost hunting, whatever. I really genuinely do respect these people, to some degree. I think Greenfield's most famous book is Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts. If that sounds familiar to you, I haven't read it yet. I will one day. But... He is actually a friend of the Newkirks. So shout out to those guys because actually, yeah, go and listen to their Greg podcast. Greg and Dana. Greg and Dana Newkirk. One day we will be friends in real life. Um, but yeah, their new podcast, Haunted Objects, they're from Hellier. Check it out. It's very funny. It's a very good podcast. Anyway, um, Greenfield was actually on Hellier mm. talking about just high strangeness and stuff like that. He is really well read on the uh, the occult, I guess. He says of his 1969 Men in Black encounter that he was attending the National UFO Conference in Charleston, West Virginia on June 24th, held on this date because it was the anniversary of Kenneth Arnold's sighting, which we didn't get into, but we will one day. Anyway, Greenfield noticed a stranger in a crowd full of strangers. Quote, There was a person there, dressed in black with dark glasses that looked almost like clip-on prescription glasses to me who was hovering around the convention. I spotted him, but a lot of other people didn't, or they didn't pay any attention to him. 
Well, we took a break for lunch on the Sunday of the convention and about a dozen of us went across the street to a restaurant and we're dining when this being began to hover around our table. He fit the classic description of the weird men in black. He was kind of held together very loosely, very pale and putty-like in, in appearance. Savage. <laughs> with a mechanical sounding voice and stiff movements. Now, Greenfield wasn't fooled by this guy, okay? He thought he was just someone trying to play a trick on him, right? So while this guy was walking around the table, Greenfield jumps out of his chair and confronted him. Why are you following us around? What's your deal? The stranger just turned around robotically and walked stiffly out the door. Oh. Greenfield chased after him with his camera and stood in his way and said again, Who are you? And the stranger replied, uh, I am a man in black in training. And Greenfield said, So you won't mind this. <laughs> I have karate noises written down here. And he took a picture of the man. This picture that we just looked at, right? Clearly uh, a man in black in training. Maybe that's why his hat isn't black. Oh, okay. He hasn't graduated to the black mm, hat yet. Kind of like black belt. Yeah. Quote, the streets were essentially empty when I took the picture, which is important for what happened next. I was right by him. So I knew I had gotten the shot. But then he went around the corner. And when I got to the, and when I got around the corner following him, he had vanished. And I would say the amount of time involved was barely two seconds. Yeah. I was right behind him, literally right behind him. I didn't expect him to be gone. I expected him to be running or walking down the street. I have no idea how to explain that. And I didn't see any place where he could have dodged into a doorway or anything. But the guy doesn't look like he's being chased. He looks like he's posing for a picture. Yeah, he looks like, well, he kind of looks a little bit dumbfounded, I guess. Like, uh. Well, I mean, that could just be his face. That's what I'm saying. Like, he could have just been like, what the fuck's this guy doing with a camera? Like, yeah, it looks like he just walked up to somebody in the middle of the street whoop -ah, whoop -ah, and, whoop -ah. and took a picture of him before the guy could react. Anyway, it's 100% a real man in black, okay? Deal with it. All right. There's your evidence. You asked for it. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm going to finish. Do you remember the story that I opened up this episode one with? Sure. The man knocking on the door, dressed all in black in the hills of West Virginia on a rainy night, judging women for their... Oh, for their... Uh, the right, the bathrobe yeah. connoisseur. Yeah, exactly. Right, right, right. So I'm going to finish with the second half of that story, okay? Okay. I certainly had no intention of launching new legends when my car ran off the road in West Virginia that November and I plodded from house to house searching for a telephone so I could call a tow truck. I had just come up from Atlanta, Georgia, where I had delivered a speech to a local UFO club. Mrs. Hire waited in the car while I trudged through the mud and rain. We had been trying to climb a slippery hill to a spot where we had seen many unusual things in the past. When their tire blew out. I found that the telephones in the houses closest to our location were not working, apparently knocked out by the storm. So I had to keep walking until I finally found a house with a working phone. The owner refused to open his door, so we shouted back and forth. I gave him a phone number to call. He obliged and went back to bed. I never knew what he looked like. My point, of course, is that Beelzebub was not wandering along the back roads of West Virginia that night. It was just a very tired John Keel busy catching a whale of a cold. But from the view of the people who lived on that road, something very unusual had happened. They had never before been roused in the middle of the night by a tall, bearded stranger in black. And that is how the legend of Beelzebub in West Virginia was born. Really? So that's an actual account that John Keel tells at the beginning of the Mothman Prophecies. Mm. And to me, 
of all of the books and all of the weird crap that I've read for this show, that stands out every time I start a new series or anything. It's that story that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. I'm like, there's, there's a brilliant story that like, it's like my granddad telling me about the brother with the weird phone stuff. Mm-hmm. If we woke up in the middle of the night and there was a dude dressed completely in a black suit, like knocking on your door, this is fucking weird. What are you doing here? You're going to be scared. Yeah. You're going to think like, nah, something wasn't right about that. And then the more you recollect this and tell it to other people and other people tell it to other people. Yeah. The story is going to grow and grow and grow. Or like the Mandela effect where you remember something that didn't happen. Exactly. And yeah. I, I, the Mandela effect rem- uh, comes to mind because I was watching Game Grumps mm. and Aaron asked Dan what color is the Pillsbury Doughboy's cravat? And he was like, blue. Blue, right? But it's not. Is it not? It's white. Whoa. Yeah. But either way, my point is, the reason why I included that story was for all of these incredible Men in Black stories, which, by the way, I am going to come back to this series. Like, I barely even, like, broke the surface of Men in Black strangeness. So in the future, I will come back with just an episode of wall-to-wall accounts but i included it just to be like have a rational idea in your head you know what i mean when you can um because you're we know you're irrational <laughs> i just mean i even have the habit of like being irrational. losing the run of myself you know what i mean especially when i'm like oh my god this could have been anything yeah it could have been just a regular human knocking on the front door mm-hmm. i just think it's always worth keeping a level head when listening to the stories of this type Sometimes ghosts really are just your cat in the other room. Like when I thought my apartment was haunted oh, yeah. in Toronto. And it very much was pork chop in the <laughs> other room. The bathtub. Yeah, doing laps of my bathtub. <laughs> Sometimes UFOs really are just weather balloons. Mm. That being said, I completely 100% believe in governmental MIB. And I'm 75% convinced on the stranger stories and accounts. But I'll keep reading the books and retelling the stories because I love them. Like, I'm very interested. But I wholeheartedly believe this final story. Like, I would die over this story because I know for a fact that it's true. I believe this man. Okay. Our Lord and Savior, Dan Aykroyd. (laughs) And this is a real story. I was outside before I knew it was cancelled, in between the interviews. And... uh, I was outside and Britney Spears called me because she wanted to, me to be, appear on Saturday Night Live with her. And so I picked up, I was outside having a cigarette, the phone rang. Uh, I, I, oh, Britney, how you doing? Oh, sure, of course I will. I turned away like this. I turned back and there was a black Ford across the road, a black Ford sedan. And I, I was trying to look at the plate and the plate seemed kind of like fuzzy. And I was, you know, definitely a police car. And two guys were there and a big, big, tall guy got out of the back seat and he stood in the street on um, on 42nd Street it was, we, we were at 42nd Street and 8th Avenue, and he looked right at me. And literally, I mean, I was on the phone, hey, oh, sure, of course I'd love for the show, saw the Ford, went back like this, turned back like a half second later, and it was gone. And that car did not go past me. It did not make a U-turn, because I would have seen 42nd Street, I would have seen that thing take a U-turn and go away. That car vanished. That car was a cloaked vehicle of some type, and whether this was like a warning to me, because the guy got out of the backseat, gave me a real dirty look. That car vanished. I know what I saw. And, uh, you know, I, I, it, was, it was just this fast. It was, oh, hi, Brittany, sure. Oh, of course, I'd love to. Do. Guy gives me a dirty look. Oh, well, sure. Car gone. That's what happened. 
And uh, then two hours later, uh, we were told we were not to continue taping, and the show was canceled, and none of them would air. I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Was that, uh, was that an MIB experience, you know, black helicopters, uh, you know, military uh, abductions that happen? Sometimes people are taken, and they talk about then being visited by, you know, military personnel and re debriefed about their abduction. Was it, you know, was it technology associated with some of these beings that are visiting that wanted to warn me off or that wanted to give me verification that I was on the right track? I don't know. But I do know I, I, did, I did turn back a second later and I, you know, it takes so long for an automobile accelerating from zero to 40 miles an hour to reach the corner of 8th Avenue and 42nd Street going past me and then pulling a U-turn and going out towards Times Square, I would have seen that car. And I looked around. I mean, I, I was looking for that then. It was gone. So, um, I, I don't know. The tapes exist. I have them. We're going to try to repackage them. We might put them out on DVD. So what was he trying to film? He was recording a TV show about, um, like, UFOs and shit. And UFO encounters and abductees. Oh. Uh, so apparently he got eight episodes in. Mm -hmm. And yet they just canned it. And to my knowledge, nobody has ever seen this show. I would love to see it. I know. But yeah, Dan Aykroyd is like... A genuine spokesperson like obviously he created ghostbusters and stuff but that came out of a love of ghosts and yeah. weird shit and he has admitted like openly to having had multiple ufo encounters like in like this story what happened in new york city his other story i think happened in like downtown montreal like busy places and stuff mm -hmm. and he's very outspoken about it yeah so mm. yeah i'll leave you with that it's the dan Aykroyd in me that keeps that belief going. You know what I mean? <laughs> anyway, tomorrow is actually our anniversary, Valentine's Day. We got married on Valentine's Day. So make sure to wish us all a lovely anniversary whenever you do hear this. And uh, Three years married. Woo! Go team. <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, guys, thank you very much for listening. And we'll be back next week with actually a titillating tales because we've got listener stories building up for once oh and for our uh listeners and if you're not watching i didn't slap adam just now that was <laughs> that was a high five yeah yeah <laughs> it's like three years Pop. <laughs> yeah. um but yeah anyway guys thank you very much make sure to follow us on youtube we're up to like 220 subscribers let's get that going a bit more because we have video now um join the patreon if you want there is a backlog on there uh Make sure to check out our Instagram for photos and reels and stuff to do with these episodes. And um, yeah, one day we'll be back to a regularly scheduled programming, like every Monday or something. But yeah. Anyway, see you guys later. Bye. Bye. -bye. Um. Who the fuck is that? Right, so we just bought some candy. <laughs> it's so cute. These, was it two little girls? Was it a little boy? What no, it's three little girls and they're oh, like baby sister, I think. Those two little girls and a baby sister. Um. <laughs> I think this is like Girl Scout chocolate or something, is it? Uh, it's it's almost like, the same shit, right? Yeah, it's like fundraising for school. Like they're probably fundraising for like um a program or to like go somewhere yeah you know 
Like a um, field trip and stuff. And we're over here like, who the fuck is this? Yeah, I mean, we live in the hood, so we're like... <laughs> I love it. It's white. <laughs>